welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 20. This week, we talk with Justin Marks about Agile within Microsoft, supercharge Visual Studio with a new Bing extension, and add Windows Live tiles to Chrome. Carl, welcome to episode 20, the big 2-0. Woohoo! <laughs> We're still going strong. Actually, one, one interesting thing, whenever I talk about the podcast or somebody asks me about the podcast, uh, you know, a lot of questions I get are how long does it take to edit? And one of the things I've never mentioned on the show before was that whenever I looked at starting the or when I should say whenever we looked at starting the podcast, I had gone out and I looked at a whole bunch of podcasts that ended up failing, you know, after episode 60, episode 50, 70, whatever. But I always seemed to be around in that like 50 to 70 range. And I sort of dug in and I actually reached out to some of those people and I said, why did this stop working? You know, why did you guys stop recording? And it was always, you know, we it was it took too much time. So whenever we started the the podcast, my goal was to get it down to, um, you know, tw- 15, maybe 20 minutes of, of editing. So if you wonder why, you know, maybe the editing isn't perfect, that's why. But uh, it's it's getting easier and easier. And I, we're going to we're still going strong. So we're going to keep pumping these episodes out. I love yep. doing this. And there's even been a few times you've beat me doing the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have one thing, Carl. I have to I have to go on Audacity and edit the entire thing. No, it's it's actually true. I mean, it takes me. With a, with a good episode, I can do it in 15 minutes. I don't I actually don't listen to the whole thing. I listen to a lot of the transitions. And uh, anyway, it's, we're getting a little meta. But anyway, today we have Justin Marks. I'm super excited to have him on, on the show. He is a senior program manager at Microsoft, and he's on the Visual Studio team. The reason that I wanted to have Justin on the show today was I had him, uh, I listened to a presentation that he gave uh, for a partner of mine, and what was amazing was, you know, the, the we have these uh, sheets where you can fill out the, you know, different presenter scores and get rated on different metrics. We had about 30 people in the audience and out of all the ratings in every single category, they gave him a perfect score. It was a, it was an amazing presentation. It just it meshed. So it was amazing. So I said, Justin, can you come on the show? So, Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for setting expectations so high. <laughs> yeah, Justin, you, you will. He will meet any expectations you have for this episode, guaranteed. It's going to be the best show ever. And his Ooh. email address. No. <laughs> if you don't like, like anything, here. send positive feedback to. <laughs> yes. Anything negative, send it to Brian Hare. Anything positive, send it to Justin Marks. There you yeah. go. No, I, I think so. The, you know, we're, we'll get to the interview here in a minute. But, um, you know, what? what's really neat about this, I think the, the reason why it's so interesting is is it's just such a cool topic. You know, we're going to be talking to you about Agile within Microsoft and Visual Studio Online, and it's, everything about it is just really cool. It's just a really cool uh, story and, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the things you've been through, a lot of people have been through or they're planning on going through or they're currently in the middle of it, so everybody can relate to it. So it's just, it's just a really cool topic. Absolutely. Yep. But anyway, let's jump into the news. We don't have much news this week because it's only been a few days since we recorded the last episode. Uh, what's the first story here, Carl? So the first one is a uh, plugin for Visual Studio. It's available for 2013 and 2012. It's it's still in beta, mm-hmm. so it, it's not finished. And and there's definitely some rough edges to this, but it's so cool that I thought that you know I'd like to share it. And what it's called is the Bing Developer Assistant, and what this does, it's got a few pieces to it. So the first thing is, as you're typing, um, it can hook into IntelliSense. And um, as it realizes what kind of code you're writing, it can bring up uh, snippets and sample projects in line in the IntelliSense. And then you can just click on that and you know it'll open it up in a new window or 
allow you to copy it over really easy. So if you know kind of what you have to do, but not fully, this is kind of a great way to get like those examples in. Uh, the other part of this, and there's really three parts to it, but the second part is it, there's a toolbar at the top where you can do a, a natural language search for snippets and, and projects. And uh, this does use Bing. Um, it searches MSDN, um, uh, Stack Overflow, and a few other places. Uh, another cool thing about it, though, is you can actually uh, tell it your local code base. So it'll do an offline search of your code as well and allow you to uh, bring in the snippets of code that you've already written. All from as well. other projects? Yes. So wow. It, so you, you point it to a local directory and it can spider that uh, all the subdirectories and index those. So I, I installed this before the show because I saw the link, but I actually didn't look at it. So yeah, I see the bar here. Yep. And I one see of all the things, these like sample I said, projects. Yep. There's some, one of the rough edges is it doesn't play nicely with ReSharper. And I'm pretty sure you have that installed. Yes. So in ReSharper, there's a way to say, um, let IntelliSense be Visual Studio or, you know, use ReSharper for IntelliSense. You have to manually toggle between those. And on the question and answer part of the link that we'll put in the show notes, there's instructions on how to do toggle between those. So I have to have IntelliSense at the Visual Studio, not ReSharper? Correct. So you do have to kind of turn ReSharper way down for this. I probably Um, pick that anyway, to be honest with you. And then... um, Right now, it's since it's early days, it only handles uh, C sharp. Mm-hmm. So if you're into JavaScript or Visual Basic or F sharp or something, that support's coming. And it's also, I believe, just in English and Chinese. So can this just pop up at any time while you're writing code? Then anytime you know, in line in when IntelliSense you know would trigger something. That is so cool. And then uh, it'll pop up a little dialog, but it actually doesn't finish the search. It'll know that there's code out there, but it won't use up all your bandwidth until you actually expand it for more details too. Cool. So Just, it is smart about how, how much it gathers as well. That's awesome. Justin, I assume you've seen this. Well, I actually haven't, but I know there's a lot oh, of really? great new productivity tools. Um, I, I definitely have to get involved more. Unfortunately, I'm doing a lot of JavaScript work in visuals to do online. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's I, where this would really come in handy too. Yeah. This I've is heard, really cool. I've heard JavaScript is the next language that they want to get in there. Yeah. That so. makes sense. <laughs> This is cool. And then there's, yeah, there's a list of uh, samples too, um, which is really cool. I, it, so is this a directory or is this also coming from Bin or from uh, Bing, Bin, not Bin. <laughs> yeah, it's, Bin it's, flash it's, debug. It is. It's coming from Bing. And then, like I said, you can also put in your local directories for the offline search as well. This is so cool. If this works half as good as what you're saying, Carl, this is pretty awesome. It, it is. Um, I was blown away the first time I've, I saw a demonstration about it. That's cool. I'm going to give it a try. Cool. Uh, running Visual Studio with all these add-ins on the same machine as uh, recording the podcast. I'll probably not a good idea. Let me close now, that. You, you might want not want to do this one live, Jason. <laughs> uh, too late. Uh, next story. Oh, this was mine. So uh, new Sublime Text 3 beta. So uh, this is pretty cool. So they, you know, they've, they've been working on the beta for a while. Some people thought this was sort of a dead project, the, the Sublime Text 3 because it's been a while since they've had a build out, but it is alive and well, and they've added a whole bunch of uh, new features. What I use Sublime Text for is, you know, Visual Studio is great, but if you ever go to like open a config file or a single CS file, it's just like you get the splash screen. I have an SSD. I have 32 gigs of RAM. I mean, you can't, you can't build much of a beefier system I have. I mean, it still takes, 
I don't know, let's say five seconds, which isn't a lot, but it's still five seconds. Uh, so what I do is all those file types like cs.cs, .config, .whatever, I have all, and also even like csproj and some of those, I have them all associated with Sublime Text. So even when I have Visual Studio open and I want to open up one of these files that's just, you know, from a different project, I just double click on it and boom, Sublime Text comes up in a fraction of a second. And it's also great for doing wikis and editing markdowns. They've got some great support for that. Yeah, I mean, the the nice thing about it is the extensibility model. You can add a whole bunch of stuff to it. Um, so, it you know, a lot of people use this quite extensively. Um, I've sort of gone back and forth. Like uh, Visual Studio for a while didn't have um, the best JavaScript support. And now actually Visual Studio plus ReSharper is pretty awesome for anything JavaScript related. So I've been doing most things in Visual Studio but this is great as kind of a lightweight thing. I, I basically used it to replace Notepad. Uh, it's it's way better than the, the regular version of Notepad. Um, oh, and then I've, I've also tried, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the show, but I've tried uh, Adam from GitHub. Uh, I think it's like Adam.io and they have a Windows build now. Uh, my only frustration with that and the reason that I haven't used it anymore is it doesn't have high DPI support. So if I open it up on the on the Surface Pro 3, like the text is super blurry. It just, it looks horrible. Uh, Sublime Dex actually does have good high DPI support, so I trust it much better than uh, Adam. Next story, uh, live tiles in Chrome. What's this all about, Carl? Yep. So there's an extension for Chrome that if a if a website has uh, 8.1 live tile support, um, like we explained that we uh, enabled for our website, um, you can replace the existing new tab page with a page that'll uh, you can pin those live tiles to. So I tried it, um, you know, I installed the plugin. I went um, and pinned our show to the the new tab page mm-hmm. and you get the live tile right in the new tab. So you see, you know, the most recent episodes, who was in them, the titles and all of that. Um, and if a site you want to pin there doesn't have a live tile, well, it just grabs in there, uh, Favicon, and you can place the tile and background color for the rest of it that you want. So. Um, I found this as a nice way to kind of make Chrome look a little bit more Metro-y mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, get those live tiles in, in a place where I'm going to see them more because it, you know, it is somewhat useful on the uh, start page, but I don't sit, sit there a whole lot. There, there are times where I'll just open up a new tab and forget what I'm doing and it's sitting on my screen and I'll see stuff. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of handy to have. Cool. Yeah, it would be nice if, uh, especially if there were more live tiles out there. I mean, do you find like, I see a screenshot here in the, in the link in the show notes, all these apps on here, do they support live tiles? I mean, there's like Facebook, Gmail, Feedly and gadget. Uh, I think, I think some of them do, but do all some of, of these? them do? No, not all of okay. them, but that's a uh, bummer. It is, but it, you know, it at least supports ways to get the ones without live tiles on there as well. Yeah. So if you're listening to the show and you have a website, Spend the two minutes and and please add some form of live tile that'll, you know, even if it just comes off that RSS feed. What was that site that you've always mentioned, Carl, for doing that? I believe it's buildmypinnedapp.com. There you go. Just use that. Now, this this thing isn't my cup of tea. The way I use a browser, I'm uh, I'm all all about the about colon blank <laughs> as my <laughs> homepage. I want my browser open as fast as humanly possible. And then I also the the big feature I use is I have. I'm all about the folders on the uh, on the favorites bar and I right click and I say open in tabs. So I have one called daily and it's like my morning reading and there's 18 tabs. In fact, Chrome now warns me. It says you're about to open 18 tabs. And yes, a lot more than your morning. (laughs) Yeah. Well, a lot of them like don't change. So pinned apps would be nice. But, you know, 
once once we get that support, that would be great. Be able to see kind of the top information uh, from each one. So this would be cool. Um, everybody, we need to get everybody to to create pin sites for sure. And I think uh, I think I did it on my site. I know msdevshow.com does it. Uh, and make sure that you do it as well. So that's it for news. So now let's get to talking to Justin because he's got some really cool stuff for us. Um, let's actually. Do you want to do you want to give us a little bit of your uh, background, Justin? Sure. So I've just celebrated my 12th anniversary here at Microsoft. I came right out of college, and I, I've had kind of a, a tour of force across the whole company. I came in as a systems engineer working in operations for MSN.com. You got to learn a good deal about what it's like to live with a pager hooked to your belt and taking down the site in the middle of the night or having it, <laughs> something happen to it and having to be woken up. Mm-hmm. That was a very interesting experience. Um, then I moved over to Windows and worked as a tester and a test lead during the Vista product cycle and parts of Windows 7. And then I switched over to program management um, and worked in Visual Studio. I was the original program manager for the IntelliTrace feature. And okay. then to Team Foundation Server, taking the back end after working on the front end. And I've kind of owned every aspect of the Agile and the work item system across TFS, including the team room. That was one of my babies when I was um, a couple of releases ago. So I've gotten to kind of do a whole bunch of different disciplines as well as a whole bunch of different teams across the company, which has been a really cool experience in 12 years. Okay. So let's get, let's get real, let's start off real deep and then we'll, we'll probably get a little bit lighter here. So my first question is what is agile to you? Cause we so sort agile, of need to define that up front whenever we talk about all this other stuff. Exactly. Um, for me, I mean, I, I'm not one of these traditional white robe agilistas. I understand the manifesto. I understand where it came from, but for me, agile's a form of thinking and a goal to help you take your team and, and be able to first and foremost deliver more value that is customer focused in a more rapid cadence. And that's how we've internalized it a lot in Visual Studio, specifically in Visual Studio Online, going from a two-year traditional waterfall type project to a place where we can ship on-prem quarterly, but more importantly on our service every three weeks, which is something we've been doing now for 72 sprints. So it's a for me it's it's really a way of thinking about that, not necessarily a specific set of practices or processes. Right. So yeah. you're you're talking about agile, you know, generically, um, but you work with VSO and TFS at Microsoft. Those are the technologies. Can you explain those just a little bit and what the differences are between sure. them? Sure. So Team Foundation Server is where our, our organization came from. It was a traditional on-premise application lifecycle management tool, an ALM suite. And we started with work item tracking and source controlled management and build management. And then over multiple releases, we started adding a lot more portions of functionality that you need while you're developing applications. So the ability to manage your test cases, the ability to take in feedback and, and automate not just build deployments, but also releases onto lab machines, et cetera. And one of the things we found when we were doing that is the cost of owning one of these machines on premise was heavyweight. Most dev teams want to work in a fast, ignore agile specifically, but they want to be able to work in a a more agile fashion or a more rapid cadence. And the last thing a team of three people building a phone app want to do is maintain a server. Um, They just want to be able to go online, start with a simple project and just grow with them. Um, and we've seen a lot of our competitors succeed in that area. 
Um, in addition, we wanted to be able to adopt those new customers where traditionally Team Foundation Server was for large enterprises, companies like Shell and Boeing, these very large IT organizations having an on-premise server for them. And we wanted to be able to support them, but more importantly, start supporting some of these smaller teams. And from that, we basically took our entire code base, spent a release refactoring it in a way that we can be on-premise versus service agnostic and ship the majority of our functionality hosted in Azure online. And then over a period of years came up with a way of not just giving that value to customers, but also making that something that enterprises could have a money back guaranteed on uptime and on service availability. Excellent. Yeah. Carl and I, we used to work together at a relatively small company, at least compared to Microsoft. And Whenever we looked at at some of the tools that we wanted to use, yeah, TFS was was just this gigantic beast that that we really didn't want to touch. Uh, Visual Studio was great, and it was it would have been great to have it hook into some of those TFS features, but it was just too heavyweight for what we were doing. So we ended up going down the fog bugs route, and then using uh, Trello for our cards. Yep. And I see, you know, now with Visual Studio Online, I mean, really the the big comparison there is Visual Studio is starting to get. You know, it is more like those tools where you just say like, yeah, I have 10 users and just give me an environment. I mean, I've created these things people create these just for temporary uses too. Um, you know, free account, you go out there and, and they, they have their, their scrum board, they have their, you know, work items, they have the place to put their code. It's just a one-stop shop for all that kind of stuff. So since we're talking about like VSO versus uh, TFS, I mean, one of the things too was that I, I don't think you touched on was was how they're developed and how how the code base is related. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So from our perspective, they're one and the same. We never think of or we never start thinking about it as this is going to be a feature for the service versus this is a feature for on premise customers. We want them to be identical. And as such, we made our code base the single code base. Now, granted, there are some optimizations that because we're using SQL Azure in our service, we change our sprocks a little bit from a traditional on-premise version of SQL. So there are minor differences there. But for the 95% case, they're the exact same product. There are some slight differences in functionality. For instance, on-premise, we have on-premise SharePoint integration. We don't offer that yet in the cloud because the integration with SharePoint Online is a little bit different. And when you get to that matrix of on-prem and hosted and how you support that um, four different boxes of the different features, we have some work to do. Um, But for the most part, the functionality is pretty identical between the two. So if you look at a work item, a work item on hosted versus a work item on-prem, the exact same work item tracking system underneath the hood. Excellent. That's what's great about it. I love the way that you guys have developed that. So this is kind of a big question, but how does Microsoft support Agile with TFS and, and VSO? So the first way we support it is we adopted Agile ourselves. Mm -hmm. Before we even, in the 2012 release, before we even adopted Agile um, as a team, we were seeing the industry as a whole moving Agile. And we said, if we're going to go build tooling for where our customers are moving to, we better understand and live and breathe that functionality. So we brought Agile methodologies internally, and that's where Sprint 1 began. Um, And then as we started to learn about Agile, we started to try to fill the gaps of what features we needed to be successful. So, for example, one of the core concepts of Agile is being able to have a stand-up. We wanted to be able to have some visualization that would represent the work items in TFS in a stand-up. Traditionally, it's been done through a board. One of the downsides of traditional Agile is, hey, you have a bunch of sticky notes on the wall. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that doesn't really help you with roll up and reporting and being able to what happens when somebody comes and erases the board or knocks the cards down or somebody's working from home that day. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of value adds because if we put that information in work items, which is where it is today, there's actually a reduction in the amount of process you have to have because all we have to do is wrap those existing work items with a board UI. And guess what? You've got agile off the exact same work items, you know, and love. And that was kind of the approach we took. And then we started building the backlog and the task board and eventually the Kanban um, functionality to support traditional agile practices. Mm -hmm. So it's been a really cool journey about doing that. And we've learned a lot internally. Um, And it isn't one thing. One of the key things we've learned is there is no one size fits all to agile. Um, I've got four different teams that I work with here in Redmond um, that own the work item space. And each one of those four teams, you look at their backlog, they look completely differently. You look at their boards, they look differently. Some teams do more of a lean methodology. Some do more of a Kanban or or, um, a Scrum methodology. Some of them are very task-focused, a traditional Agile way. And all four of those teams are using the exact same project in TFS. They just do it a little bit differently. But the nice thing is our upper management gets to see all the data in the same way. We have one bugs database. We have one backlog database. And they're able to see all that information in a cumulative roll-up, which is kind of one of the big value adds that TFS or Visual Studio Online gives over a lot of our competitors. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you know each of those teams are doing things slightly different. Now, I imagine that's kind of the same throughout the entire company there at Microsoft. Um, how how per, uh, pervasive is you know leaning towards Agile in across all the different you know areas at Microsoft, not just the ones that we see like yours? Yeah, that, that's always an interesting question. I mean, I know I, I've heard random rumblings where somebody, the wrong person gets asked, so how's Agile done at Microsoft? Like, oh, we don't do my Agile at all. Well, in <laughs> Team X in one random place out of the 90,000 employees, maybe they're not using Agile. Right. But the reality is Agile is kind of a ground up movement. Across the board, you might take, I'm not going to say a specific organization, but some major organization like a SQL or a Windows might not say they're an Agile org, but that does not mean that individual teams in that organization aren't Agile. From the opposite side, there are organizations like the developer division, which houses the Visual Studio and Visual Studio Online products. And we have from top to bottom and bottom to top said Agile is going to be the way we run our business and we're going to have a common ship cycle. We're going to have a common set of sprints. So we kind of have a little bit of everything. And, and it we've taken the best of Agile, the best of Scrum, the best of Lean, the best of Safe, and built a process that works for our organization. And we see a lot of other organizations like Windows is moving from a very traditional waterfall model to a much more Agile model. And the key thing that all of these things have in common, no matter what process is, we want to meet the customers where we, where they are. We want to be able to deliver new value to them on a, a much faster cadence than ever before. And we want to be able to respond to both the feedback from those customers and the business opportunities as they arise. And traditional waterfall methodologies are not going to help us do that. Yeah, I think when when people ask you, you know, about Microsoft as a whole, I think probably a lot of them are thinking the, the, the real question is Windows. So it's good yep. that you address that question. And it's a, it's a big shift to steer. I mean, Steven Sanofsky mm-hmm. has been there for a long time. There were some very strict processes with some specific goals. I mean, we had to do a lot of things to fix what happened through Longhorn and that Vista product cycle. But at the same time, there's got to be some room for some agile tendencies. So you're not waiting for a year on the best case scenario to get the next version of Windows. You want to be able right. to 
update after update after update. I shouldn't have to wait a full year or two years to get paint to fix something. Like that's <laughs> a terrible way of delivering value to customers. Yeah, I guess you can really tell just by the output which teams have made successful transitions to Agile. Yeah. I mean, you see quite a few teams. I mean, some of them are doing, you know, every two to three weeks, you see updates to what they're in charge of. So Exactly. If you're a store app and you want to begin keeping your customers, if you look at the Windows phone or the Windows store development sites, the number one way to attract customers is having frequent updates. And Waterfall is not the way to get the frequent updates. Ad- I wouldn't say you have to be fully agile, but you got to be a lot closer to agile than waterfall to be able to actually deliver on that value. Yeah, Joel Smolsky actually had an article on that years ago where he was talking about the the things that he did to promote fog bugs. And they spent tons of money on marketing. I mean, they did all these crazy things. They ran different promotions. He said the one thing that that promoted the um, you know, the product was shipping out a new version you know, with yep. new features, delivering new features. And he had a chart on there and he was showing it's like that. It, that was just bringing it up to that next plateau every single time. That was the only thing that had a significant change on the amount of people that were using the product. It was amazing. Yeah. It's like once you release, you're already stale. So it's, everyone's always asking for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And exactly. Agile's a great way of delivering that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so I, I saw, I was watching uh, one of your presentations recently and also you had the, the last presentation I saw from you, um, whenever you were talking to a partner of mine, you would show these two different charts and they were on different slides and this, this sort of blew me away and it, you know, seems like common sense once you see it, but I think that it really had a big impact. So it was the quality levels before and after switching to agile. So whenever it was on waterfall, it, <laughs> you want to describe what happened on waterfall where, where the, where the bugs were increasing I, the way that you stated it was, was really good. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause as you say, in retrospect, it's like crazy talk. Yeah. So the way we used to do visual studio and I'll, I'll paint the before picture mm-hmm. was we would basically have two milestones in a two year release. And basically the first set of work before we even started the first milestone was like, let's say four to five months of planning. And we'd write a bunch of vision docs and we'd, have everyone agree on all that and we validate with customers and then PMs would write a whole bunch of specs. And at the end of four months, we had a plan and we knew this was going to take us who knows how many dev months to go build. So we'd say, okay, dev team, go and get them. And what they would do is they would basically have eight to 10 straight weeks where they could do nothing but code and they were free to do whatever they want. And they would do exactly what dev you would expect out of devs. They would party, they would write as much code as possible. And when you got very close to that eight to 10 week mark, you'd shove in even more as possible because you knew as soon as that mark ended, as soon as that milestone completed, you were going to have a march of four to six months of doing nothing but bug fixing. So it really wasn't driving the right practices and, uh, and, and motivators to get devs to keep quality at a consistent level and always worry about reducing debt because the system was in place to say functionality here quality here after the fact and that was something that we would did for years and everyone's like that's just the status quo like imagine if you were a new hire coming into the team and saying hey guess what we're just starting our quality milestone which is going to take six months <laughs> and all you're going to get to do is fix bugs like is that really something that's going to excite me as an individual to come in at the end of the day let alone yeah. like of course that's not going to be the right motivator of quality because there's a lot of things that get forgotten there's a lot of inherent knowledge people come and go and, and that just ended up having this ridiculous increase in bug count and then this this kind of 
slow trajectory where you're going from 10,000, 100,000 bugs to zero over a period of six months. And then what do we do? We do it all over again. Like, that's not <laughs> learning. That's not improving. That's just craziness. Yeah, um, it's I, I just I hope people are listening to this, especially the people who maybe maybe haven't started at least adopting some agile practices mm-hmm. are realizing what it's like to be on the other side of that fence. You know, Hey, our, our quality never gets worse than, you know, it never gets that bad. And then you start to look back at, at how you used to do. And it's like, yeah, quality got terrible. And then we just focused on that. And then quality got terrible. And then we focused <laughs> on it again. Like, like that just seems, it seems crazy. I know. And what, and, of course, we are going to do. We wanted to make a change for the customer value. The customer is really where we where we live and breathe as a company. But even if you look at it from the HR perspective, it was the wrong thing. Like no one wants to work. No developer does. I want to spend the next month fixing bugs. Like that's a terrible motivator. Why don't we let them constantly provide value and do quality all along? And that's really where when we say we do agile, that's what agile first and foremost meant to us. We don't want to be building up debt. We want to stay on top of our debt. And working at the end of a two-year product cycle, we should be able to deliver more value. But instead, in this three-week period, we're delivering a small incremental piece of value, and we deliver it with a high level of quality where there's no debt. Then we do it again and again and again. So it's more like kind of like a stepladder function instead of like a big bang deployment problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end, we end up finding that we deliver more value, not less. And on top of it, everyone's excited. In any given moment, we get to start something new constantly. And you don't have this giant weight that you have to carry around with you. When we say debt also, we're not just talking about bugs. We're also talking about quality from a test perspective. We want to be unit test and test driven. We want to do that every step of the way. We don't want to, again, say, OK, we're going to throw the ball over the court to the test team. Now it's their problem while I go off and do fun stuff. Like That's also the wrong motivator within a team. So those both of those things were things that we were able to address by changing over to an agile methodology. Jason was telling me a little bit earlier about bug cap. Can you tell us what that is? So this is kind of one of those tools we use internally that we had to, it's, it's partly old school Microsoft. It's partly a, a tool to help us with quality. We're basically, everyone always said, well, what's the right amount of debt? How many bugs is okay to maintain on the team? And what we said was, well, that's variable per team, but we still want to come with some quantifiable measurement. So that's where bug cap came from. And the basic concept is, You take the number of developers that you have on the team and you assume each developer is going to fix, let's say, one bug a day or two bugs a day. And every team is different about what that number would be or every organization was different. And you say, well, I want to be able to ship at any moment in X weeks. So let's say for us, it's three weeks because we want to ship at the end of every sprint. So you take the eight developers that fix one bug a day. You have there's three weeks. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out how many bugs you can actually handle. And that's what we say is the bug cap. Anytime the team gets over that number of bugs, you have way too much debt and the team should be self-aware to say, you know, what, we have to stop providing new value because our debt is getting too out of hand. Let's go address that and fix it and not just get under the cap because then we'll just get right back to it, but really focus and get that debt down significantly where we feel more comfortable again. You should call it a credit limit. (laughs) <laughs> it's very much like a credit <laughs> limit, exactly. Yeah. We don't and want to, they, again, we don't want to pay it right under that limit. We want to get it for fully down. We want to refinance to make it happen here. Yeah, so. well, you know, it's just like a credit card. Like, it's best to pay it off every month. Uh, <laughs> you want to keep the amount low, and, and if you don't, you're going to be paying a lot of interest on it. Exactly. That, that is a great analogy for this, because it's yeah. no different than software development. So. Yep. 
You definitely um, don't want to take out a second mortgage yeah. no, no, <laughs> or, no. or use or use one team to pay off another team and then just keep shifting the bugs around. It's funny because even when we were first jo- starting to do agile inside the team and we were new, I mean, one of the key things about agile is you're supposed to be constantly learning. Mm-hmm. And that became very obvious because the first couple of sprints that we did as an organization were horrible. Like we didn't know what we, we had. We didn't know what we were doing, just to be clear. Yes, we had a whole bunch of really good agile trainers come in, and it was great that upper management fostered this ability to bring in these trainers and take a couple of days for the team to learn and do agile practices and and do some role playing and games and things like that. But even when we put into practice, we had to figure out what it was going. So like the first couple of sprints across the board, we delivered nothing. Like we built up more debt than we actually delivered value because we're still (laughs) trying things out. And we were trying to figure out what's the right amount of planning and how many dev docs do you have to do? And what's the role of specs and what's the role of test and how are you supposed to unblock test on day one? How do we do that? So we ended up getting to a place where I think it was after sprint seven. It was either seven or eight where we said, stop, 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 the dead is high, everybody's at their bug cap, and we ended up having two straight sprints of nothing but paying off debt. And it was the right thing at the time, but at the time, we also said, we never want to get into this situation again. This is a terrible experience. We don't want a debt sprint. And it was kind of, we had to go through that to learn what not to do. So that was a great, I mean, if you're first learning Agile, the first thing I I would suggest is things are going to go badly, that doesn't mean you stop doing Agile, which is uh, what I've heard a lot of people say, oh, we didn't do it. It didn't work for us. Well, did you give it enough time? <laughs> Look and see, like, in your retrospectives, you see what went well and what went poorly and how are we going to fix what went poorly and how are we going to do more of what went well? No one says, I and mean, nobody is going to say you're going to be able to start doing Agile on day one. And at the end of that sprint, everyone's going to be happy and everything's working perfectly. If you're thinking that, you're, you've got the wrong expectation going in. you got to learn as you go. Well, Carl, we, uh, when we implemented agile, it went perfect from day one, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was, it was basically the same thing you were talking about. I, we, we, we knew we wanted to do it and we, we leapt in and it was, it was absolutely painful and we knew it was going to be painful, but I think as long as you go in with that expectation that it's going to be painful for a while and there is light at the end of the tunnel that, uh, just, you know, keep, keep persevering. It's worth it at the end. Yeah, and even when you get to the end of the tunnel, it's not the end of the tunnel. Like right. there's a lots of great processes coming out. You go to the Agile conference with a bunch of people from my team went to a couple weeks ago, and there was a ton of really interesting talks and different things teams are trying. And we as a team, we don't want to boil the ocean. We don't want to say, okay, everything we know, we're going to throw out and start again. But every sprint, we're looking for what can we do differently? Or, hey, I heard about this idea. Can we try it for a couple sprints? Because you're never going to know anything in a three-week period. And we definitely keep that viewpoint and, and that set of actions on a regular basis where we want to try new things. If they work, we're going to do more of them. If they don't work and we've proven they don't work over a period of time, we'll throw them out and try something else. But we don't want to be complacent and say, well, we know Agile and there's nothing else. Like It's a continually evolving and learning experience for the whole team and the organization. Yeah. And, and actually, Carl and I, we, we did go through that. Um, what we ended up doing was, you know, we started out with a cost and an impact on each card or on each story. And after a while we realized that we weren't, we weren't using that impact number for anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a little bit. We're like, eh, it feels kind of weird just getting rid of it, but we just got rid of it. And then we were pretty happy when we got rid of it and we never, we never missed it. But then what we realized was um, that we could, we wanted to actually know how, how 
how much value something delivered versus what it was actually going to take to do it. And we came up with this formula and it was just, it was real simple. We were using the Fibonacci sequence to cost the stories. And what we did, what was that? Traditional story. Yeah. Story points. Yep. What we ended up doing was we would, we would assign that, that, um, that cost and that impact, and we'd actually divide, or I should say we did cost and value. And what we do is we take value and we divide that by cost. And that's how we did our prioritization. So if there was something that was super easy, but delivered a ton of value, that would bubble up to the top. If there was something that was really good, you know, deliver a lot of value, but it was also super expensive, then it might end up in the middle. It might end up at the bottom. Um, and that helped us do prioritization. That was just something we just sort of realized as time went on. And so we, we just adapted as we went. Absolutely. And it's great to, to reevaluate and, and ask why. Why are mm-hmm. we doing this process? Does it still provide the value it did on day one? Because there's a lot of like, just like you, I started when we started with Agile, we said we're going to have stories. We're going to break those stories down into tasks. The tasks are going to be hour based. The stories are going to be story pointed. We're going to figure out our velocity. But 10, 12 months later, we kind of had a good sense. Like, is it even worth the half hour discussion to story point and do planning poker? It wasn't. Right. Let's stop doing it and see what happened. And sure enough, we didn't miss it. Why? Not because it didn't provide value at the beginning, but because we were a mature team that had worked together and it was time for us to find a new set of processes to make us better instead of just assuming what we've always done is the right thing, which it's very easy to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So what does an agile team within Microsoft look like? So again, again I should say within Visual Studio. Yeah, exactly. It's different across <laughs> Microsoft. So I actually can talk about my team. Sure. Um, for us, across Visual Studio Online, um, we have about 10 to 12 different teams, and teams are made up of developers, testers, and program managers are three core disciplines at Microsoft. So there's traditionally one program manager, um, a dev lead who has five to eight developers, and a test lead who has two to four testers. And that's what we call a team. And we have the luxury of having rebuilt a complete building um, fairly recently. And one of the things we did in that new building is we literally tore down all the walls. We got rid of all these individual offices, which was kind of a traditional Microsoft building, and instead built team rooms. And so we're really, I mean, there was definitely a transition period. No one's going to say everyone was excited about team rooms on day one. Mm -hmm. But after having lived in this building for a year, I don't know why I would ever go back. The fact that the whole team works together is in one room. We've even gotten to the point where some stand-ups aren't even necessary anymore because we're together all day long. We know if somebody has a bug, they raise their hand and say, hey, can somebody talk and give me some advice? Hey, can you do a code review before I check in? Hey, Justin, can you give me some feedback on this design or take a look at this UI? All the formality of waiting for schedule meetings and to even just do email, all of that tax goes away. But again, we're pretty lucky in that way. I'm not saying it's the right thing for everyone. I'm not saying it was an easy transition. But we definitely got some benefits out of that. Do most um, of your developers us, like being in one room like that? Um, each one is different. Okay. I, there are definitely <laughs> are issues. I've got one developer who has severe allergies mm-hmm. and people's colognes and deodorants and the food that they eat creates problems. And that's, you know what, we have to be respectful of that. And we have to figure out what the right way is. Is it him being in the room, is it possible? Or is it something where we said, hey, we're going to put you or he chose, we didn't put him anywhere, but he chose to go into a separate individual we called a, a mini conference room as his office because he couldn't handle physically <laughs> and medically <laughs> what was going on. Yeah. The other thing is I mean, you've got some devs that really need to kind of get in the zone, get their headphones on and, and really focus. And we need to be respectful. Um, and no, if somebody has their headphones on, don't start yelling their name and tapping them on the shoulder every two minutes. 
So we had to have a lot of social issues. But again, most of the issues were solved socially. Um, and it was about learning to adapt. Absolutely. I mean, I, for one, was completely freaked out. I'm like, I'm a program manager. I do things like this all the time where I'm talking loudly and having meetings and having conferences. And then when I'm not, I want to be able to write specs and not be bothered with every little detail every minute of the day. So we have to work as a team. And one of the, again, just like with the rest of Agile, we let the team make the decision of what it means to be in their team room. I remember our day one when we moved in here, we kind of wrote up like, what are our team rules? And we talked about everything of, do we need to, um, like, how, what do headphones mean? Are we allowed to have music? To, hey, are you allowed to take your shoes off in the room? Are you allowed to bring in smelly food? Like, and we, the number one rule that I've seen across all teams that was helpful is people have to be respectful of others. And you also have to, if something is bothering you, say it. We're all adults. We all should be able to be open and honest together and just say, hey, you know what? This is bothering me. Can we fix it? Is there some way we can alter it to make it work for everybody instead of saying, well, I just can't. Like, we don't want the can't. We want to say we want to do this and let's figure out how to make it happen. And it's not much different from the rest of Agile. So uh, so that's our team room situation. But other than that, the, I mean, every team is a little bit different in terms of their makeup between the different disciplines. We have some teams that have people working remotely. Um, one of the teams, their PM um, lives in Colorado. Another team, one of their people lives in England. We we're able to figure that out. We actually even got some of these little Skype robot stations where you can uh, roll the station in, plug it into the wall and have a Skype station with their face on it. We even got a really fancy where we have little robotics where you can actually turn the monitor to whoever's talking. So it really feels like a virtual representation of that person. So we've gone a little overboard at times. I mean, it's kind of cool working at Microsoft and get to work with some of the stuff research has, but it's, it's pretty cool. So. Cool. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned that you switched to smaller teams, kind of what, what prompted that and how did you decide how to divide up into those smaller different teams and product areas? So it, it's really cool the way we do teams and it's very different than I've ever seen anywhere else inside of Microsoft. Basically the way we've designed teams is at the beginning of a product cycle, we still are agile. We don't stop our agile process because a new product cycle starts. When we say product cycle, some season, some major release is going to be start the way we just released Visual Studio 2013. Now we're going to start the next release. And we basically sit down and again, do some planning. Agile never says don't plan. It just says, make sure you have the right process at the right time. And we basically go over what are the top investments we want to go in. Last release, we wanted to have Git was one of our major investments. And we had some cloud build was a major investment and team room. So once we enumerated those, we basically found the right PM to drive each of those feature areas. And we left it up to the rest of the ICs to figure out what they wanted to work on. Um, each of the PMs basically presented their case for why their feature area was cool and interesting and what the possibilities were. And we then did what we called the yellow sticky exercise where we let every one of the individuals on the team go and choose which team they wanted to be on. And at the end of the day, they kind of balanced themselves out. There were, there were a couple instances where people, there were too many people in this one bucket and we had to balance them or there was an individual that had just too much knowledge in a specific area and we needed to count on them to stay with where they were. Um, so there were a couple of people that didn't get their first choice, but overall the teams were self-selected, um, which was a really cool opportunity. And then when we did the next release, we did it again and the people that didn't get their opportunity were definitely given first choice and given a little priority. And we were thoughtful about, you know what, if this person has so much knowledge in setup, let's say, let's actually spread that knowledge around and spend the release teaching other people and doing more pair programming 
and practices like that. So he is not the bottleneck or the one person because when people get hit by a bus, you want the team to still function. Um, so it was another way for us to actually spread the knowledge and also keep people really interested and engaged in what they work on. And those teams last for about 12 to 18 months. So the teams get to still have enough time to work strongly together. So that, that was really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like things go pretty smoothly that way. Was it was it was it like that at the beginning when they first got introduced to their teams and and doing agile, or was there a little bit more hiccups at the beginning? There's always hiccups at the beginning when you get new people working together. There's a lot of social issues there. There are some people I know. My test lead was very 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 much by the book agile and cared a lot about processes. But a lot of the devs were like, no, 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 I don't want process. I want to be able to do it a little more freeform. I want us to be more of a continuous delivery and less about driving the tasks. And it's a good time to have conversations and people have to be willing to say, these are the things I'm willing to try. I'm willing to, does it solve? But what problem are we trying to solve? Let's be upfront about what are our goals? If we could agree on the goals, we can agree on what we're going to try and validate those against those goals instead of just saying, we're doing this because so-and-so said so. And the other thing is, this is not a lead-driven culture. No one from our management is going to say, you must do tasks. Like That just doesn't work. You have to let the teams be responsible for figuring out what are they going to do and how are they going to operate and be responsible and to delivering on their commitments, to delivering on the value that's expected of them. That to us is really what's core, and that's what kind of ties all of our organization together. So speaking of management, how do you guys figure out what features you can be working on? I know you spoke about it a little bit earlier, but can you go into that a little bit more? Um, so that's always an interesting one. I know I've gotten to work on a very wide number of features. Um, and part of that, I mean, at Microsoft, we have a ladder system in terms of technical depth and, and your skill set. That plays a, uh, a role in it. Part of it is about career opportunities where you have more senior developers looking for larger scopes of influence. Um, technical passion plays a role in it. So there's a bunch of different factors, but that's a really a conversation where we first kind of set up the leads and that's decided between the PMs and their managers and the dev lead and test leads and their managers. Um, but it all worked itself out. And then from the individuals, the people that are at the kind of the nodes of the tree, they're given, I mean, for the most part, they're given complete freedom to pick which team they're on. And we obviously, we haven't run into that occasion, but everyone's like, oh, what if everybody wants to be on the same team? Well, that doesn't really happen in practice. So let's mm -hmm. not talk about hyperbole. Let's actually look at reality, try it and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out perfectly, then we adjust across. So. And earlier, you mentioned that you use three week sprints. Yeah. How, why did you pick that number? <laughs> and, you know, how, how do you recommend to other people, you know, how long should their sprints be? Yeah. So again, that's, it's, you got to try it and figure out what works best for you. For us, we found that four weeks was too long to deliver value because we deliver value on our service at the end of every one of those three sprints. And waiting that extra week was kind of like it felt monthly. And if you're doing monthly, it kind of was like, eh, it takes too long. It doesn't sound good that we deliver once a month. Um, and we did talk about doing two weeks, but there was a lot of concern that the amount of process would be an overhead um, that we didn't want to pay on that regular basis. Doing a sprint planning meeting every other week just felt like we really need to do that. So Two was too short, four was too long, so let's try three, and it worked. If it hadn't, I'm sure we would have adjusted, but as the case may be, we've gone 72 sprints of three weeks since we literally started Agile. We're not resetting the clock at the end of a release. It's been 72 times three of that many, 200 weeks, 210 weeks of us delivering value in every single one of those sprints, 
we've delivered value at the end on the service. I think there's only been like two or three exceptions where a sprint ended on a holiday, like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving, where we said, we're not going to deploy. We're still going to do all the same processes. We're still going to deliver the value. We just won't have a deployment. This sprint will skip sprint 26's deployment because it landed on Christmas, that kind of a thing. But yeah. it didn't, it didn't, it's not like, well, we're in a six-week sprint. No, it still was two, three-week sprints. When Jason and I were working together, we originally started off with one-week sprints just so we could get used to the agile patterns and, and the new things that we were doing that we didn't do before. And then after we had done that for a while and we got used to the agile way of things, we bumped it up to two weeks because that's what we felt that we could do. We, we liked having the every other week being able to push something out. We were in a, a little faster product cycle for the product that we were doing. And I, I think it worked very well for us. But um, I think one of the things that I just learned as a whole while doing agile is it is different for everybody. You have the people at the, yeah, you have the people, you know, they, they teach the courses and, you know, they take the classes and, you know, the book says this, but every team's different. And try, and try again, try different things. That is the biggest thing. Like if you want to try one week, go for it. See what happens. I know teams that are doing one week sprints, not in my team specifically, but in other parts. One of the goals we had, and, and this is kind of way you scale agile is it was one of the things we found incredibly important was sharing a schedule across the organization. Not it was a two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, but keeping a consistent schedule so that, you know what? We could tell marketing, hey, this is when this stuff is going to be delivered and we'll be able to talk where they don't have to do magic math and mapping to figure out, well, their sprint 72 was the other person's sprint 26. Like, no. And as new teams on board, they don't start at sprint one. They start where the rest of the organization is. And it took a little while to get there, but all of Visual Studio is now on the exact same sprint cycle. And it's three weeks. If an individual team wants to treat it as one-week sprints, sure, go for it. But it's still a three-week sprint across the org. Yeah, for us, it was it was overhead. Just like you said, it was overhead versus how quick we wanted to deliver value. Yeah. And like Carl said, we started out with one week. And it took us, I think, a long time before we switched to two. Yeah, it was more than six months. Yeah, it was quite a while. And we're like, okay, we feel very comfortable that two will work. And then we switched to two, and it worked. Yep. <laughs> so... um. This is kind of a loaded question, but is <laughs> is Agile right for every product team? <laughs> I think there could be elements of Agile that are right for every product team. You, ha- But again, going back to the very beginning of this, you've got to figure out what goals are you trying to solve and choose the parts of Agile that work best for you. Doing Agile for the sake of doing Agile doesn't really provide anything, in my opinion. I'm not an expert. I'm not one of the white robes. You're not paying me to be an Agile guru. But each team is different. They have different problems. They have different value props they're trying to deliver. And whether you say you're Agile or Scrum or Lean or Kanban or any of these other terms that are coming out in the industry, the goal and the motivators are what really matters. What are you trying to do as an org? For us, we want to be able to deliver value on a faster cadence and get it to the hands of our customers. It worked for us. Then speaking towards that, was there a point when you realized that you know Agile was meeting those goals? Or did I you I think it was pretty obvious from day one for us because we're like, wait a minute, we don't have to wait. Like, here's the perfect example of where it would create problems for us. We always have traditional, I mean, we're Microsoft products. We ship RCs and then betas and the RTMs. And we got to the point in our one of our earlier products where we got to beta. We had some really good customer piece of customer feedback that we wanted to react to. But we were already at RTM. We'd already, we're like a week away from shipping. Are you going to stop the ship just because of one little bug? <laughs> no. So what do we have to do? Oh, well, two years plus from now, we'll be able to address that little bug. Like, 
That's a terrible thing. No one wants to hear that. It's great feedback. Why can't I have a release cycle right away? Why can't like? And frankly, if you know as a team, like think of it from the opposite end. If you know of an issue and you know there's nothing way to ship that value, are you going to really prioritize that work right away? It's easy just to throw it onto a list and, oh, we'll get to it when we get to it. I mean, yes, it's a lazy answer, but it's the way people work. Whereas now, like once we saw as a team that we were going to ship every three weeks and we were going to be ship ready at the end of every one of those three weeks instead of saying, hey, we have to go do a whole bunch of quality after the fact, we were able to take those pieces of feedback. And frankly, we can make the hard decisions sprint after sprint of, is this worth fixing? If we don't deliver it in the next three weeks, is it worth delivering at all? Yes or no? So you weren't having these hundreds and thousands of bugs on your backlog. You were saying you're going to have 20. And that's a much more easy uh, – it's a much easier thing to have everyone on the team understand. And it's a much easier thing to be able to prioritize your work because you're not looking at everything under the sun. You're scoping yourself. You're focusing. And to us, Agile helped us do that from day one, even with the pain of trying to figure out how to make Agile work in our organization. Yeah, it's it's obvious from the outside that <clears throat> there was a big change. You know, I the the update, I think update one came out and I'm like, oh, well, cool. There's an update. And I got that. And, you know, I probably waited and I had some demos or something. So I waited like two weeks and then I don't know how long it took for update two. But all of a sudden update two is out. And I'm like, wait, what? Like I just installed update one. And now I, I can't even remember is update three out yet. Update three is an RC. It's so, an RC. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you start reading all this update three news and you're like, well, I just installed update two. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it's, you know, it is, you can see like the value being delivered in each one and people are excited about it, but it's also sort of bite size where you can get like the one page on like these things were added and you go on that list. And you're like, Oh, these three things are really cool to me. Or you're just using it in, in new functionalities popping up that you didn't have before. Exactly. And then the nice thing from the service perspective is you don't have to worry about installing all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you have yeah. to do Visual Studio, but it just appears in your account from the service, yeah. which is really cool. Like I, one of the things I love hearing from customers, like, I didn't know it could do that. Like, yeah. it just, you just keep on bringing new functionality in every every three weeks. Yeah. And from the product side, I mean, one of the things that I've always heard uh, is like a negative of Agile, especially from people that are very driven in the waterfall based world is like, well, I can't ship my stuff every three weeks. Well, no one says you have to ship every single thing at the end of every sprint. We absolutely have features that have taken six, seven sprints to ship. But the goal is to break the work down and you're showing incremental progress towards shipping. And then when it's ready, we will put it onto that train. And we've had to build some internal processes to enable that type of work. But no one's saying because something is shipping every three weeks, everything has to ship every three weeks. That is not the same thing. Right. So be careful there. I think that's motivating for people too. I've, I've put, I've started really trying to any kind of sample that I create, I try to put it out on GitHub because it, it just feels like putting it out there in public and making changes to it that people can see. I'm so much more motivated, motivated to do that because it's like, Hey, somebody could go in there every day and be like, Oh, he's got this check-in and he added these two features. Cause I'm not going to just like email everybody you know, every, every day and, and send that out. But it's just doing it in public means that it's just obvious what you're, what you're doing. And I just find it really motivating for the things I work on. Absolutely. Yeah. The only place that I've seen teams struggle with adopting agile is when they're very budget bound. And, and that I'm lucky that I don't have to get to live in that world, but I know a lot of consultants and a lot of people in some of like the major like healthcare industries and things like that, where you're sharing resources across teams and you're given a budget of, hey, 
you only get to have this development team for X amount of weeks or X amount of hours. Mm-hmm. Agile is a little bit harder to apply in those situations, but there are elements of Agile that definitely can help, whether it's, it's something as simple as we're going to use a backlog to dictate the priority of our work. That in itself is one chunk that can provide value no matter what your release cadence is, no matter what your development cadence is. So you got to pick and choose and find the right thing that works for you. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you mention that you you like to be able to measure the success of a particular feature. Uh, do you want to explain that process and give us some examples? Yes. Yeah, so there's a great book by Eric Reese called um, The Lean Startup. And in it, one of the big concepts is this idea of build, measure, learn. You build what you want to build and provide the value. You then set up some hypotheses on how it's going to be used or what your success metrics are going to be. And then you learn based on what people actually do to work with the product. And we've kind of taken that data-driven development culture to heart across all of Visual Studio. I'm I'm sure most of our customers are aware of the little, would you like to send information back to Microsoft type of Mm -hmm. thing? We've been for years collecting information about how people use our system. Of course, we're being careful of privacy and not identifying to a specific user. But in the aggregate, we're able to say, hey, is this feature being adopted? When we did this feature, did we have more people using it? Were they able to use it in a faster way? Did they have a better experience? Um, And there's tons of case studies across the industry from Microsoft and externally where this has helped make major changes in both the way the teams work and the way the product is perceived by the customer. Um, You've got A-B testing is a really cool thing coming out of our industry. Analytics is a great thing, and we're trying to do all of it. Um, And we want to do, I mean, as a product owner, for me being able to release something on the service and say, immediately when I flip the switch and the thing goes live, see, what is my adoption rate? That's cool. I can find out, is, are mm-hmm. people discovering this? Then when we see, oh, they are, and they're experiencing these types of issues, we're able to do that from data, and that can help us prioritize that. And very, very tiny tweaks can make major impacts. Um, and a lot of people forget that, especially in the waterfall world, where as soon as it ships, they're already on to the next thing, and you can't go back. Yeah, they're completely retooling it. <laughs> exactly. So I, I know this past week, one of the things that we did was we looked at the telemetry for charts. When you add a chart for a query and team foundation server, it was something we added a couple of sprints ago. And one of the things we were seeing is, even though our default for the chart was show me a chart for seven days, 95% of the charts were being four weeks long, 28 days. So that's four times the amount of data we have to process. So of course, performance is going to be slower. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, great. Now let's figure out a hypothesis around that. Are people trying to get more data Is that like they want a longer time span so they can see the trend over time? Or are people trying to get more granular data and really see all those discrete points? Well, let's go try something out. So what are we doing this sprint that deploys this week? We're adding a 12-week time chart, but instead of getting it daily, we're going to do it weekly. And we'll see how much is the adoption there. And that'll help us answer that question without having to go to every one of our 1.0 million customers and asking them, what do you want? This is a a data-driven way of approaching that problem. And maybe we're wrong. Maybe they really want to get more granular stuff. So maybe we have to think about different ways of sampling the data. Things along those lines we're able to do now, which is really, really cool. Yeah, very cool. So I think this will be our last question, but uh, does Visual Studio Online run on Azure? Yes. Um, We have been (laughs) one of their earliest and biggest customers for a long time, uh, which is a great relationship because for us, we're able to really lower our cost of ownership. And we have great processes to be able to use what's inside Microsoft. And for them, because we're built to such scale, 
we're able to give them very early feedback about features like SQL Azure and the service bus, which we heavily rely on. And we have a very close relationship where we're driving new features into those products because of our experiences. And if you look at Brian Harry's blog, we're very open about when problems happen in our service, how we're actually triaging and how we're not pointing the finger. That's never the goal. It's about working together to make the overall system and the overall experience of the Microsoft stack better, not just for us, but for our external customers as well. Boom. That's my pick of the week, Carl. Visual Studio Online. <laughs> that's the Azure pick of the week. Uh, so where do they go? Is it uh, is visualstudio.com? That's where they start? Yep. If you go to visualstudio.com, there's a big green button in the upper right-hand corner. So get started for free. You're able to sign up with your Microsoft account and just get a visualstudio.com um, account set up for you and pick your vanity URL. Reserve your name now. Cool. So. Carl, what's our Windows Phone app of the week? So this one this week is a game. And uh, one of my sons, uh, he has uh, the Dell Venue 8 tablets and he just was playing this game called make it rain money. And you just have a stack <laughs> of bills in front of you and you tap it and it flips the money in the air and you, whatever money you flip out, you earn, you can just use that to get bigger bills. It, it's a really dumb game, but I've been playing it all week ever since. It's those are, those, are, the best, those are the best ones. And well, I, I'm one of those people. I can't sit still. My hands are always doing something. And it just, for certain people that don't like that, it drives them crazy. And my wife is one of those people and I've been driving her crazy, just tapping my tablet all week when we're watching TV, we, whatever it's nearby. So, um, there's a windows phone and a windows store version of it. Um, if you want to be mindlessly distracted, this is the, this is definitely the game for you. Okay. I do. <laughs> I am the target audience. I'm going to check that out. Uh, so let's see here. For the, uh, if you want to submit feedback for the show, you can email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Make sure you subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, you can find me at ytechie.com or twitter.com slash ytechie. Where can they find you, Carl? I can be found at wpdevguy.com or at Carl Schweitzer. And Justin, where can they find all of your stuff? Um, I actually can't remember my Twitter handle right now. I think it's Justin C. Mark. It's been a little while since I've tweeted. So we'll, we'll have, we'll have it in the show. Well, notes, I'll so. update you after the fact. Okay. Okay. Is there a blog or anything like that? Or so right now we basically guest author on the visual studio blog and through Brian okay. Harry's blog. So there's kind of one channel from the communication from visual studio online instead of having to go to 12 different places. Okay. But everybody should definitely check out VisualStudio.com and sign up. It's very cool stuff. And it's, it's, free. it's come yeah it's it's free free to start and it's definitely come a long way i will i will give it that if you're using other products this is a really nice unified system for doing builds for managing your scrum teams for managing your source code all of that stuff it's really come a long way it's really great so justin thank you for being on the show we really appreciate it, it was great stuff for having me it was a lot of fun